glad you're here this morning. Uh, if you're visiting for the first time, we would absolutely love to get to know you. And one way we can get to know you is by having you fill out our Connect card. They're on all the communion stations around the room. And so uh, a little bit later in the service, you'll have the opportunity to go take communion with your friends and family. And as you do, if you grab one of those cards, just jot down your information and you can put it in the black offering box on all the communion stations. Or you can download our app, Restoration Church Wood Forest. And once you've downloaded it, open it up, go down to the connect button, and you can connect with us electronically. It comes directly to us that way. So if you're electronically inclined, you can do that. Or if you're really technologically savvy, pull out your phone right now, um, grab that uh, camera, take a quick picture of me, and then click the uh, uh, connect QR code right there. Just hit that, it will open you up to the connect card and you can connect electronically in that way. Um, uh, we're trying to make it as easy for you as possible to connect with us because we wanna connect with you. We wanna know you, we wanna get to know you, and we wanna invite you to be a part of our family. And so that is one very easy way. It's the first step in kind of starting the dialogue between us and you. And so we'd love for you to do that. Uh, hey, wanna let you know that two weeks from today, is Easter. Uh, so uh, we will have four services over two days, April 3rd and 4th. And so here's what we're asking you to do. Uh, Saturday evening at 5.30 will be our first of four identical services. And we would love to invite you to come to that service, as many of you as possible, because we know that Easter Sunday, April 4th, will be a madhouse around here. Um, look around you right now. It's 945. This service is full. It's been full for months. And most people will come to this service on Easter because it's probably the best of the three service times we have. So we invite you to come at 530 um, or come at 8 o'clock. On, on Easter Sunday morning, because 945 and 1130, we know we're gonna be completely full. And so if you can, please adjust your schedule to be a part of one of those uh, two services, but invite somebody. There are people in your neighborhood uh, that need to come and be a part. And this is low-hanging fruit. People will come twice a year, right? Christmas and Easter. And so it's a very easy time to invite people to come and be a part of one of our services. So this will get you out of your comfort zone just uh, as you're having conversations in the cul-de-sac, watching your kids beat up on each other to say, hey, Maybe if you come to church, y'all won't beat up on each other. And so I uh, just invite them to come and be a part. Uh, you'll be really glad you did. It's gonna be a great weekend. Okay, Revelation chapter nine, if you have your Bibles, turn there. Revelation chapter nine. Uh, if you're not familiar with the Bible, just open to the back of the book and then just kind of start turning back. The last book of the Bible is Revelation. Uh, we started Revelation in September. We are racing through it. We're all the way to chapter nine. And uh, so that's a joke. Uh, so chapter nine, uh, let me give you just a little bit of review from last week. The beginning of chapter eight, Jesus opens the seventh seal. So remember, there's a scroll that, that Jesus took from the hand of God, seven seals. He's the only one worthy to break these seals. And so we saw beginning in chapter six, snap, snap, snap. He's opening these seals. He opens the first, uh, the first six seals. Then there is a pause as, uh, as 144,000 in chapter seven 
12,000 from each of the 12 tribes of Israel are sealed with a mark on their forehead. And now they're becoming these evangelists that are now God's plan for those who still want to believe, have the opportunity to believe in Jesus as he is judging, executing judgment for the world so final salvation can take place before Jesus finally returns and ends all things, all right? So that's chapter seven. Last week we saw at the beginning of chapter eight, the seventh seal was broken. And it says heaven was silent for about 30 minutes. Remember we talked about that, how we are silent averse in our culture today. Um, we don't like to be quiet. We don't like to be still. We don't like to watch commercials. That's why DVR was created. It was created for all of us who don't like to wait a hot minute to watch whatever we're watching. And if DVR is not enough, Hulu will cover it for you, right? And so, uh, man, we are just, we're fast paced all the time wanting to jump from one thing to the next. And the worst problem we have is being still. Is that true? Yeah, I mean, some of you right now are already kind of planning for what you're gonna do after church. You already set a stopwatch, how long will he be? It's gonna be a while, y'all. So I'll, I'll do the best I can to get through it, but we just don't like to be still. Psalm 46.10, the psalmist says, be still and know that I'm God. God wants to be known and he is known often in the stillness and in the silence. And so it, it, it's still for about 30 minutes. And remember, this seventh seal that opens actually ushers in these seven trumpet judgments. So there were seven seal judgments, but the seventh seal actually opens us to these seven trumpet judgments. And then we're gonna see in a couple of weeks that the seventh trumpet judgment actually opens up to seven bowl judgments. What does that say? There's a whole lot of judgment going on, right? And so we know that about Revelation. We know that it is telling us about the end times. And what I wanna remind you of is if you're reading this book as some cosmic cheat code, if you're, if you're trying to figure out when's Jesus coming back because I need to put it in my calendar, I wanna know the day, time, hour, and there are all of these people that fancy themselves end time scholars, right, that are saying, I have figured it out. Just know this, if they figure it out, Jesus is gonna say, great job, and immediately change the date. Here's why. He said, nobody's gonna know when I'm coming back. And that's why he says it right at the beginning of the book of Revelation, chapter one. We stay ready so we don't gotta get ready, right? We stay at this, at this uh, place in our lives of alertness, fully alert and ready for the return of Jesus. And so that means that the product of our life is always living in this state of readiness that he will return. We don't know when. And, and, and even today, as we get into these next two trumpet judgments, man, they're really dark, really kind of crazy. And so uh, I want you to just be prepared for that. It will freak a brother out if you're not ready. So just get ready and hold on to your spouse. Love her well right now because it's gonna break loose here in just a minute, okay? So we see in chapter eight, the first four trumpets and, and reminiscent of the plagues that took place in Exodus when, when they were inflicted on the Egyptians before the Israelites were freed. And so we saw that last week, that with every judgment, it kind of alluded back to a time when God inflicted these same type judgments on Egypt. Why is that important? Because he's already told us 
that he is the same yesterday, today, and forever. He is both the alpha and the omega. He is the beginning, the end, and everything in between. It's why at the end of chapter four, we found everyone in heaven throwing their crowns before the throne of God and singing over and over and over, holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty. What? Who was and is and is to come. He's the same. There is a sameness about God. He's the same God in Exodus that he is in Revelation as he is today in your life. So uh, if you're like me, so some of you fancy yourself as just steady, right? Nothing gets to you. You're all good all the time. Never let them see you sweat. Men, we tend to be more like that. Or I wanna say, men, you tend to be more like that because I am like all over the map, right? I'm pinging up and down all the time. My friends are like, wow, you're the female in the relationship, right? No offense, ladies, but uh, I, I, I kinda understand because I'm just really emotional and the highs and the lows, I feel it all. I, and and uh, you can tell this is how I am all the time, by the way. Um, hang out with me and you'll find that I'm just kinda like all the time, right? <laughs> Here's the point, in my, you graph my life and it's like this, and here's what I know, God's the same, all the time. So if you find yourself feeling distance, distance from between you and God, I just want you to know, it's not him, it's you. If you were wondering, if you're like, you know, is it me or you? It's you. <laughs> Why? Because God's always the same. He never changes, he's constant. And whatever's going on in your life today, know, that God is constant. And if you will listen, if you will lean in, you will find him to be the way maker in your life. So we see these four judgments, okay? These four trumpet judgments, here they are. Trumpet one was hail and fire. Remember I said, if you've ever uh, said, hey, I grew up hell, fire and brimstone, it's actually hail, H-A-I-L, fire. And it's hail and fire mixed with blood that hit the earth and it says a third of all vegetation was killed, one third, that's important. Trumpet number two, the sea turned to blood, killing a third of all the creatures of the sea. Trumpet three was a comet that was named Wormwood and it made the water source bitter and lots of people died as a result. And then trumpet four, striking a third of the sun, a third of the moon, a third of the stars. And it says a third of the day was dark, but even more telling a third of the night was dark. And remember I said last week, isn't it not always dark? No, it's really dark. So those are the first four of these trumpet judgments. All of them have allusions back to the plagues back in Egypt because that's who God is. He is constant. He is the same. And again, all of these show both the power and the mercy of God on display. The power of God to inflict judgment, but the mercy of God in that it was only a third that was affected. Remember, if you're a pessimist, you're like, oh, the third of the earth. If you're an optimist, it's like, hey, only a third, right? Wherever you stand, just know that God is not done. If you're not dead, he's not done. Say that. If I'm not dead, he's not done. If I'm not dead, he's not done. I'll say it like you believe it. If I'm not dead, he's not done. You need to receive that this morning. If you are still living and breathing, it means God's not done with you. 
Today, if you are sitting here and you still have breath in your lungs, that's the mercy of God on your life. It means you have another opportunity today to live the way of Jesus. Another opportunity to receive your Ephesians 2.10 calling on your life and live a life that matters. That's the mercy of God. So we get to the end of chapter 8. Verse 13, there's an eagle, in other, in other translations it says an angel is flying around saying this, woe, woe, woe to the inhabitants of the earth because of the trumpet blast about to be sounded by the other three angels. So he says, whoa, 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 why? Because there are three more trumpet judgments to come. And what he's saying is, you thought that was bad, more's coming, more is coming. So chapter nine, as we get into it today, um, it'll show us not only the power of God over evil, that get this, God is gonna use evil to defeat evil. He's gonna use evil to defeat evil. So you're like, wait, what? What does that mean exactly? That he will use evil to defeat evil. You see, it's a hard concept for us to grasp because um, you know, we see it in the movies all the time, right? Love a good movie where there's a protagonist, an antagonist, and who wins in the end? The protagonist, right? I mean, we love it because most great movies, you get to the end and good triumphs over evil. The worst movies are when the antagonist wins in the end and they roll the credits and you're like, what? Right, we hate, we hate those movies. Why? Because we intuit that good will always win out. So here's the problem with that. The way that good and evil is displayed, we're always hanging in the balance in these movies, wondering how is the protagonist gonna win out in the end? It seems precarious, it seems like maybe it won't work out. So here's the problem with that in the spiritual world. In the spiritual world, God is sovereign over all things. He is an uncreated being. Before eternity passed, he was. And when this world is no more, he will be. The enemy, Satan, is a created being. So it is not God versus Satan. It is God and everything else. Satan does not have the final word in your life. Only God does. He's always in control. He is sovereign and in control over all things, including Satan, demons, spiritual forces of darkness. And that's gonna be very, very clear as we move through the next few chapters. So let's start, Revelation chapter nine. We begin with verse one. It says, the fifth angel sounded his trumpet and I saw a star that had fallen from the sky to the earth. So if you look back in Revelation chapter eight, verse 10, it talks about the third angel sounded a trumpet and a great star blazing like a torch fell from the sky the third of the rivers on the springs of water. And it talks about this, this star called Wormwood that infected all the water and made it bitter, okay? So now we see another star in this fifth trumpet falling from heaven, but here's the difference between the two. This star, verse two, is assigned he. So this star is not a comet. It's not a, 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 a rock falling from heaven. This star is none other than Satan himself. Okay, so Luke 10, 18, Jesus talks about it and he says this, I saw Satan fall 
like lightning from heaven. If you look in Isaiah 14, 12, he says this, how you have fallen from heaven, morning star, son of the dawn, you have been cast down to the earth you who once laid low the nations. He's talking about Satan here. The prophet Isaiah is talking about an eternity past, the same thing. Remember, Jesus, John says in John chapter one, verse one, in the beginning was the word, the word was with God, the word was God, he was with God in the beginning. He's talking about Jesus, that in eternity past, Jesus Father, Son, and Spirit had you on his mind before the creation of the world. They were talking about how this was all gonna work and Satan was an angel who went rogue. And so before the foundation of the world, he was cast out of heaven with he and a third of the angels. We'll see that come to bear in a couple of chapters. And so here's Satan, the one who fell like lightning the one who was called the, the, the morning star, the sun of the dawn. We see in Ezekiel 28, 14 and 15, it, it says, you were anointed as a guardian cherub for so I ordained you. You were on the holy mount of God. You walked among the fiery stones. He was a good, righteous angel. But look, you were blameless in your ways from the day you were created till what? Till wickedness was found in you. And so Satan before the foundation of the world was perfect, but wickedness was found in his heart. He wanted to be God, and he was cast out of heaven, a created being trying to be God-like because of his pride. And now he parades around, Paul says, in 2 Corinthians eleven fourteen, 14, it says he parades around as an angel of light. So, so here's what he parades around as. He is the angel of propaganda. You see, here's the problem. He knows that he's been defeated. He knows that he has no power. All he's got is his words and his thoughts. He is known, at, at, we'll see in Revelation 12, as the accuser of the brethren. And so he comes to you. He knows your weaknesses. And so he's just a propaganda machine. He's constantly breathing lies at you, trying to distract, trying to distort truth, trying to get you moving in a wrong path. And remember, we talked about this a couple of weeks ago, that, that actually the enemy, he only has the power that God gives him. And if Jesus lives in you, think about this, 1 John 4, 4 says, greater is the one who lives in me than he who lives in the world. You know what that means? So if, if the enemy only has the power that God gives him, if he's masquerading as God, but he's really impotent, and he only has the power God gives him, that means that in Jesus, when I said yes to Jesus, I received the Spirit of God in my life, which means that I have all the power and all the authority that has been given to me by God. It means that the enemy actually only has the power that I give him because of Jesus. Let that sink in for a minute. Some of you are like, right? Because you've believed for so long that this all-powerful enemy is someone that you need to bow to when in reality, when the spirit of the living God lives inside of you, nothing can touch you. Nothing. And yet we shrink back over and over and over again because of this propaganda machine, the enemy constantly trying to remind us of who we're not instead of believing the truth of who we are. If you look back in Luke 10, 
verse 18 said, I saw Satan fall like lightning. But look at verse 19. He says, I've given you authority to trample on snakes and scorpions. We'll see why that's important in just a second. And to overcome all power of the enemy. Nothing will harm you. These are the words of Jesus to his disciples. Hear them as for you this morning. However, do not rejoice that the spirits submit to you, but rejoice that your names are written in heaven. And what he's saying there in short, hey, all the power and authority has been given to you, but it ain't about you. It's about the Jesus that lives in you. Okay, so just pause for a second. How cool is that? Uh, for some of you, that is the truth that you've needed your entire life. That you have assigned to the voice of God a voice of shame. You're living in shame because of something you've done, something you're currently involved in, that you can't, you can't kick whatever that addiction is. And so the, the, the enemy comes to you in a voice of shame and tells you you're not worthy. But you've assigned that to the language of God. And you believe that God is ashamed of you. Today, know this. The enemy's a propaganda machine. This morning, you need to realize that is not the voice of God. God never speaks in shame. He never speaks in guilt. He never speaks in fear. No, he speaks in love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control. That's Galatians 5, and 23. The fruit of the Spirit. He wants to bring alive in you the giftedness that he's placed in you. He would never shame you. Man, he wants to coach you up so that you can live the life that you were called to live. We gotta get this. Because if we don't get this, then we'll read the terror of this passage and we'll shrink back. Receive today. You have more power than you could ever imagine because, because of Jesus in you. Sorry, I got choked up there. All right, verse two. Let's look at this. When he opened the abyss, oh, by the way, uh, before I get to verse two, at the end of verse one, it says, the star was given the key to the shaft of the abyss. The star was given the key. What's the key word there? Given. Given. What does that mean? He's not in control. God gave him the key to the abyss, which means that he did not possess the key to the abyss before God gave it to him. Again, just further proving God is always in control. Now let's go forward. When he opened the abyss, smoke rose from it like smoke from a gigantic furnace. The sun and sky were darkened by the smoke from the abyss. And out of the smoke, locusts came down on the earth and were given power like that of what? Scorpions on the earth. They were told not to harm the grass on the earth or any plant or tree but only those people who did not have the seal of God on their foreheads. They were not allowed to kill them, but only torture them for five months. And the agony they suffered was like that of the sting of a scorpion when it strikes. During those days, people will seek death, but will not find it. They will long to die, but death will elude them. Okay, so a lot here. So Satan takes the key, opens up the abyss, and what happens? It says that smoke emerges, the sky goes dark, and out of that, these locusts invade the earth. So again, that is this allusion to Exodus chapter 10. It's the eighth plague 
Remember, back in, back in uh, uh, you've seen the movie, The Ten Commandments, that, that locusts, the eighth plague, they flooded the earth, and now here at the end, here come these locusts again. But these locusts were like scorpions. And what did it say? It said, he gave them the power to torment, but not kill. What does that mean? They did not have ultimate authority. They were being held back. He was using evil to torment evil. Come on, y'all. God is in control, and now he is turning evil against evil. Who's in control? God. And two thoughts here. Number one, um, you know, this, this plague, we see it, Exodus 10, and now Revelation 9. But the second thought is this. He's turning evil against itself. Here's what I love. Where were those who followed Jesus? They were protected. No one that had the seal on their forehead was harmed. Again, look back at Luke 10, verse 19. He says, you're gonna have the power over scorpions and snakes. Nothing can harm you. It's this beautiful picture that scripture proves scripture. He was speaking to the disciples at that time saying you have ultimate power and authority and now in Revelation 9, it's proving itself true again. That here come these locusts that have stingers like scorpions that are tormenting people. So has anyone ever been stung by a scorpion? Yeah, we had a few in the first service. Yeah, a couple of you. Did it hurt? <laughs> you're, you're like, mm, not bad. Okay. Well, you're tough, because from what I understand, it's extremely painful, right? I think it can kill you if you don't take care of it, right? So, so scorpions are pretty, they're, they're pretty tough creatures, and they can inflict a lot of pain. So imagine that you just get stung over and over by a scorpion. That would be annoying, wouldn't it? Right? Imagine that you laid in bed tonight, and every 10 seconds, you were stung on another part of your body by a scorpion. Some of you aren't gonna be able to sleep tonight, right? You're like, Ugh. <laughs> Yeah, that'd be so painful. And that's what's happening here, that they're being tormented over and over and over again to the point that, what does it say? They wanted to die, but they couldn't. We saw that in chapter six, they were begging the mountains to fall on them and kill them because they would rather do that than live under the judgment of the one who sits on the throne and the lamb who was slain. And now here in chapter nine, they would rather die than go through this pain and torment. So here was my thought, here's where it took me. It took me to Romans chapter eight, or Romans chapter one rather. In Romans chapter one, Paul, who's in prison, he's writing this letter and he says this, starting in verse 18. He says, the wrath of God is being revealed from heaven against all the godliness and wickedness of people who suppress the truth by their wickedness. Since what may be known about God is plain to them because God has made it plain to them. For since the creation of the world, God's invisible qualities, his eternal power, his divine nature have been clearly seen, being understood from what has been made so that people are without excuse. So what he's saying here is, listen, God's power has been shown. It's been shown. So know this, where you live today, you are here. So if you're here for the first time, uh, I've been talking a lot about God's power for the last few minutes. And he says, listen, God's power has been on display so people are without excuse. 
We live in the United States of America. I mean, by, by all intents and purposes, uh, we are a nation that is supposed to be following Jesus. Look at our culture, it says otherwise. But, but uh, for a lot of us, we have some God concept, right? For, for most people in the room, you've grown up in some church with some understanding of who God is, of who Jesus is. And what he's saying here is you understand, so really you're without excuse. So stop giving yourself a break is what he's saying. Verse 21, for although they knew God, they neither glorified him as God nor gave thanks to him, but their thinking became futile and their foolish hearts were darkened. Although they claimed to be wise, they became fools. They exchanged the glory of the immortal God for images made to look like a mortal human being and birds and animals and reptiles. So he's like, hey, listen, even though they knew God, they thought they were smarter than God. So think about your culture today where we live. People are saying that God is archaic, that the Bible is no longer relevant. What is that saying? We are elevated in our minds. We have evolved beyond God. We have evolved beyond the Bible. It's no longer relevant for our lives. Have you heard that? I mean, it's really a prevalent thought in our culture. And so it's like, uh, I mean, whatever. And so claim to be wise and they exchanged the glory of the immortal God for images, that's idol worship. So for a lot of us, you're like, well, I don't worship idols, right? I haven't, haven't, you know, haven't whittled out an idol for my house. Well, do you have a TV? How much time do you spend watching it? You know, for all of us, uh, we're worshiping something. Just follow the, the trail of your time, your energy, your treasures, and that'll determine what you worship, right? Get, get online and just look at your bank account for the last month, tally it up, put it in categories. Some of you already do that. And that determines what you really worship. That determines what takes priority in your life. And man, that's humbling for me, right? Because if I, if I look, man, I think I worship gringos. I'm not positive, but, but it does have a pretty big piece of the pie, you know? And, and, and so uh, we look at it and, and we go, man, how dumb are those people? Well, we're those people. Knowing the truth, but making excuses when he says, well, there's really no excuse. And then look at verse 24 and 25. Therefore, God gave them over in their sinful desires of their hearts to sexual impurity, the degrading of their bodies with one another. They exchanged the truth about God for a lie and worship and served created things rather than the creator who is forever praised. Here's what he's saying. They gave them over to themselves. So at some point, if you continue to live outside of the purposes of God for your life and, and he continues to pursue you, his mercies are new every morning. He pursues and pursues and pursues. But at some point, he says, mm, I'm just gonna give you over to yourself. You think you can do it on your own? Okay, knock yourself out. See, because what we don't understand is God's mercy has a limit. We don't know what that limit is because when we look at the Old Testament, man, for hundreds of years, he sent prophets saying, hey, all I want you to do is turn back to me. If you don't, you will be sent back into slavery. Hundreds of years, prophets would come, prophets would go, begging them 
to turn back to God. That is the mercy of God. But you know what? His mercy had a limit, and we saw it, that, that at some point his mercy was done because he is also a God of justice. He has to judge sin. And so if you choose with your life to continually live outside of the purposes that God has for you, his mercy extends. And because you're here living and breathing today, he's allowed you to continue to move forward. But his mercy has a limit at some point. He has to judge sin. It's the nature of God. And know that that is not a popular message today, by the way. That's what makes this irrelevant. Why would a loving God do that? Because it's the nature of God. It's a holistic picture of God. There's the peace of God. There's the patience of God. But there's also the justice and judgment of God. We see it on display here in Revelation chapter nine. But here's what we know. He's never out of control. He's never out of control. He is the one who gave the key to Satan. He is the one that allowed him to open up the abyss. He is the one to, who allowed him to torment his enemies. And so he gave the enemy of God the key to release the enemy on the enemies of God. He turned them over to themselves and let them go at it. But who was protected? The ones with the seal on their foreheads, the ones who believed, the ones who were following Jesus. So we also see that God gave him a time limit, five months. So he said, you'll have five months to do this, so knock yourself out for five months. But what we'll see at the end of this passage is that at the end of all the torment, at the end of the, the, even the next trumpet judgment, that they would just shake their fist at God and go, no thanks. That's a hard truth, right? That we're looking at this going, man, all of these judgments, and yet those who are part of the ones who are left standing, still look and go, come at me, bro. Maybe you found yourself there this morning. Look at verse seven. He kind of describes more what these locusts look like. Uh, they look like horses prepared for battle. On their heads were something like crowns of gold. Their faces resembled human faces. Their hair was like women's hair. Their teeth like lion's teeth. They had breastplates like breastplates of iron. The sound of their wings was like the thundering of many horses and chariots rushing into battle. They had tails with stingers like scorpions. And in their tails had the power to torment people for five months. They had as king over them the angel of the abyss, whose name in Hebrew is Abaddon, and in Greek is Apollyon, that is destroyer. So uh, here's what we know. We, we look at this and it's very descriptive, right? Is this illusion or is it literal? I have no idea. Right? So we don't know if these are literal locusts with faces like humans, with teeth like lions, with hair like women. I mean, it could be. I mean, it would not be unlike God to do something uh, freaky like that, right? I mean, he's God. He can create anything he wants. I think it is more likely that this is representing some kind of army that is going into battle, right? We don't know. And anyone that is trying to figure this out is gonna make their best guess. And so here's my best guess. I have no idea, right? Could be figurative, could be literal. All I know is it will be terrifying. 
The, the, the vision that John is getting is this is a terrifying moment when these locust-like creatures are in the world and they are at very least demonically possessed people that are carrying out the plan of the enemy to destroy the enemies of God. And it, it says that in Hebrew, his name is Abaddon. In, in, in uh, Greek, it's uh, Apollyon. Both of them mean destroyer that reaches beyond the grave. So he's like, hey, if you're my Hebrew brothers, Abaddon, if you're my Greek brothers, Apollyon, here's what we know. He's a destroyer. And this is none other than Satan himself. Then again, look at verse 12. The first woe is past. The other two woes are yet to come. Pause. The mercy of God on display. Again, even after this happens, there's a pause and it is God's mercy. Again, we said, if we don't view the wrath of God through the mercy of God, we miss the point that God is all merciful. And even as he is pouring out his judgment on the earth, he pauses every once in a while, let everybody catch a deep breath, give them an opportunity to reconsider. Because that is the mercy of God on display. Maybe you felt that in your life. Maybe you have felt this dramatic pause in your life to give you the opportunity to go, I need to reconsider what I believe about God, what I believe about who he's called me to be. That's his mercy on display. Okay, quickly, look at verse 13. The sixth angel sounded his trumpet, heard a voice coming from the four horns of the golden altar that is before God. It said to the sixth angel, who had the trumpet, released the four angels who were bound at the great river Euphrates. So um, the sixth trumpet, another vision of terror, and it says a voice cries out from the altar. Um, we don't know who that voice is. It could have been God, it could have been Jesus, it could have been an angel, but he calls out and says, release the four angels that are bound at the Euphrates River. So the Euphrates River, a large river, and it was really the boundary between the Roman Empire and the Parthian Empire. So these were two empires that had been at war uh, for years, for over 100 years, they had been fighting back and forth. And so there was this large river, the Euphrates, that served as this natural boundary. And now this person, whether it was God, Jesus, an angel calls out and says, release the four angels that are bound. Angels were not typically bound in the Bible. So these are probably demons, angels that were cast out of heaven with Satan that were bound at the Euphrates River. And look at what happens. It says, release them in verse 15. And the four angels who have been kept ready for this very hour and day and month and year were released to kill a third of mankind. What? What does that say? It says that the very time, the day, the hour, the day, the month, the year, it means that God had a plan, that they have been bound there, ready to carry out their assignment in the judgment. Again, releasing evil on evil. It's all part of the plan of God. Again, we gotta see this. God is in control. 
This is not all hell breaking loose. The only reason they have any power at all is because God gave them the key to the abyss to open it up. God is the one that said, release these four angels from the Euphrates. It's God that did that. It's not them. It's not God looking going, oh, oops. Uh, what, 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 what's going on? God is never out of control. In your life, he is never out of control. In the things that you don't understand, he is not out of control. And know this, your understanding of God's plan is not a prerequisite for your followership. You've got to hear that. For a lot of us, we don't understand, and so we assign blame to God and we check out. Know this, God is big enough for your doubt. He's big enough for your misunderstanding, but, but he's not required for you to understand. He's a little bit bigger. He's got a bigger picture than you could ever fathom. And sometimes, I mean, the hard stuff of life, it's just hard. And I don't understand it. And I, I have an insufficient understanding of why God allows some of the things he allows. And I look around the room today. Some of you have experienced some very hard things just since the beginning of the year. And I wish that I had a sufficient answer. And it almost sounds trite to stand with you when a family member dies, to stand in a hospital room and to hurt with you. And it's very hard to say, God's still in control. Because that feels insufficient in the moment, doesn't it? Because we feel completely out of control. But let me just remind you, when all the dust settles, he's still gonna be in control. When you come to your senses and come back, you'll recognize that God is at work all the time, even in the things you don't understand. If you're not dead, he's not done. That's hard, isn't it? It's, it's, it's just hard. So he says here, that the number of mounted troops was twice 10,000 times 10,000. And he says, I heard the number. That's 200 million soldiers. So that's a lot, you know? Um, and now they're being released and it says that they're gonna kill a third of all mankind. This is devastation, right? First you had these crazy looking locusts and now, this, this army, 200 million strong, is coming and destroying yours. So contextually, because the Euphrates was a boundary, the early hearers of this revelation were living in the Roman Empire, right? Because Israel was under Roman occupation. It was just a war-torn nation. Uh, a lot of people were occupied in Rome itself. And so when they read this, they probably thought about the Parthian army, that maybe it was the Parthian army because a little bit later in Revelation, it'll talk about uh, an army coming from the east. And so uh, this would have been an army coming from the east at that time. Think about it. As we've moved through time, every generation thinks that we're the generation that Jesus is coming back and will interpret this through the lens of current events. Today, there are 200 million soldiers in China. Could that be the army? I have no idea. And again, anyone that says they know is just taking a, a guess. Maybe it's an educated guess. It's still a guess. We don't know. 
starting verse 17. Um, by the way, is this a figurative army? Is this an army of demons? Or is it an army of people? Yes, it is. It's, it's one of those. So you, you can know it's one of those. All right. Is that clear enough? Right? Are you with me? Is everybody with me? Yeah, we're almost done. Some of you are like, I'm kind of with you. All right. Just stay kind of with me for about 10 more minutes. All right, here we go. The horses and riders I saw in my vision looked like this. Their breastplates were fiery red, dark blue, yellow as sulfur. The heads of the horses resembled the heads of the lions. And out of their mouths came fire, smoke, and sulfur. A third of the mankind was killed by the three plagues of fire, smoke, and sulfur that came out of their mouths. The, the power of the horses was in their mouths and in their tails, for their tails were like snakes having heads with which they inflict injury. Again, terrifying imagery. Think about that. Horses that look like lions and they got tails like snakes and they're breathing out this, this smoke and fire. I mean, it feels kind of dragon-like, right? I mean, it's freaky stuff and it's meant for us to be a little unhinged. When we, when we see it, when we read it, it's like, oh, what is that? We don't know. We don't know whether it's figurative or literal, but here's what we know. In that day, it will be terrifying. And a third of all mankind will be wiped off the earth. Whether it's a modern day army or whether it goes back to something of this vein. It's a tough season for the earth. And whether it's literal or figurative, it's clear that evil is personified here, is being released on the earth under the control of God. We're all going back to that, right? Over and over and over again. God is never out of control, y'all. Never. It's under the control of God. And here's where it ends. The rest of mankind who were not killed by these plagues, get this, still did not repent of the work of their hands. They did not stop worshiping demons and idols of gold, silver, bronze, stone, and wood, idols that cannot see, hear, or walk, nor did they repent of their murders, their magic arts, their sexual immorality, or of their thefts. So how did they respond to this terror? The dust settled, and they're like, okay, I'm still alive. They went right back to doing what they were doing. How many times have you done that in your life? I mean, if you're just being honest, how many times have you dodged a bullet, something that you thought was gonna be the end of everything, and you survived it? I've heard some stories over the last two weeks uh, from men's advance of, of guys that are uh, finally bringing the lie into the light for the sake of freedom, and they get set free. And it's like, whoa, I'm living in freedom. And then you know what the enemy does? The enemy will continue, because he is a propaganda machine, will continue to lie to you. And if he can, he'll pull you back into that again. He will get you back in a place of defeat and shame. And he'll hold you there as long as he can. Because our nature is this. When the coast is clear, we shake our fist at God and we say, I got this now. Thank you. Hey, thank you. Seriously, thank you. And then we go about our way. And it's funny because this harkens back to the Ten Commandments. Have no other gods before me. They go back to worshiping other gods. Don't murder. They go back to murdering. Don't commit adultery. They go back to sexual immorality. Don't steal. Uh, the Ten Commandments say do not steal. 
I mean, it goes back to these foundational truths, right? It, it, it's not the little things. It's these big things that they're like, no, I will not live under the authority of God in any way. And again, this is a picture of you and me. You were not born good. You were born into a world of rebellion with a heart for rebellion. You realize that, right? Do you realize that you weren't born good? I mean, some of you are like, oh, well, you don't know my, my little angel, right? She was born good. I'm like, okay, remember from the time your little angel could walk or talk, they're in full-blown rebellion, right? Grabbing things that you say no, it's why you constantly are having to correct because we are born with this willful independence. And, and the older we get, the more that willful independence begins to take hold. And we think that we can be the masters of our own universe. We live in rebellion. It's who we are. And Romans 1, that we talked about earlier, says that over time, you continue to want to be the master of your universe. God will give you over to yourself and he will use evil to inflict evil on his enemies. But it's all under the banner of he being in complete control. So here's the beautiful thing. What if you begin to think about this differently? You see, we have a word in the church that we use a lot called repentance. Here's what repentance means. Think in a new way. You see, repentance means I need to start thinking in a new way about my sin. I need to start thinking in a new way about God. What if today he gave you the ability to think about him in a new way? To think about him in a way that you're like, man, I don't understand what's going on in my life, but God, I know you're good. What if the number one thing you decided today is that God was good no matter what? See, if God's only good when you get your way, he's not good at all. But in fact, what if he changed your mind? James chapter one, he says this, consider it joy, brothers and sisters, when you encounter trials of various kinds. Because the testing of your faith produces perseverance and perseverance must have its perfect work so that you may be mature and complete, lacking in nothing. So what does that say? That God will test your faith that sometimes he, he will cause or allow all things in order to mature us and complete us. It is his, it's his way. He's wanting to, develop, wanting to develop a perseverant spirit within you. He wants to build up your endurance. And so he will send things your way that are very, very hard so that he can build up your endurance. And the, the goal is maturity and completeness. Some of you are still living in immaturity because every time things go wrong, you check out. Some of you are here this morning and maybe you've been away from church for a very long time and you decided that you're gonna give God a break and show up today. And so here you are and know this. God looks at you and he says, hey, listen, I'm crazy about you. I never promised you life would be easy. What I did promise you is I'm gonna be with you. 
through all of it because there's something I'm doing. I want to build that perseverance in you so that you can be mature and complete. I'm trying to complete the picture in your life. You're not perfect. That's why I gave you Jesus, and I gave you Jesus to grow you into the person that I've designed you to be. And pain is often the activator of what God wants to ultimately do in your life. It's the gift that nobody wants. Does anybody want pain in your life? No, none of us want it. And yet God uses it to accomplish his purposes. If you're not dead, he's not done. So, Three things real quickly. Number one, God is sovereign over all things. So just a reminder that, that uh, if you've bought into the lie that, that God is in an epic battle with Satan, um, it's not really a battle. Because he can end it any time he wants to, which means that sometimes he allows evil. He allows it because there's something bigger he's doing and he wants to create a perseverant spirit in you. He is still in control and he's still working for your good all the time. Philippians 1.6, Paul says it. He says, he who began a good work in you will be faithful to complete it until the day of Christ Jesus. Number two, God uses evil to defeat evil. God uses evil to defeat evil. That's a crazy thought, isn't it? that God will use the evil things of this world to defeat evil? That he'll use the foolish things of this world to shame the wise? It's who he is. But because he's over all things, including Satan, he will often give us over to ourselves. But remember, he's always in control. He's always in control. And number three, and this is the most important thing for you today. The enemy was defeated at the cross. Do you hear that? The enemy was defeated at the cross. He was defeated 2,000 years ago. He was rendered powerless at the cross. He conquered sin. He conquered death. He conquered hell. And through Jesus, you now have power over the enemy. Come on, y'all. I want you to clap right now because it's the truth. And here's the thing. You don't believe it. You don't believe it. You know how I know that? Because I don't hear stories every day about how the power of God has overcome hard circumstances in your life. I hear more about how you're losing and how angry you are at the state of your marriage. And, and man, marriage is hard. Marriage is a laboratory by which God makes us holy, right? Yeah, trust me, marriage is not for your happiness. That's why so many marriages end in divorce, because you're not happy anymore, so you get out. It was never meant to be for your happiness. It is a laboratory by which God makes you holy. And you have power over the enemy because of Jesus. Power to have a great marriage. You have power to overcome that addiction. You have power to overcome that hard thing that's happened in your life. Why? Because the enemy was defeated at the cross. And you have the power to overcome that. Luke 24, 20, 49, when, when Jesus was ascending, he says, listen, I'm leaving but I'm gonna give you power from on high. Second Peter 1, 3 
It says you've been given the divine power of God to live a godly life. 1 John 4, 4. Again, greater is he that is in you than he that is in the world. 1 Corinthians 10, verse 5, says this. Verse 5 says this. We demolish arguments and every pretension that sets itself up against the knowledge of God. I wish I were better, y'all. Um, and, and we take every thought captive and make it obedient to Christ. We have the power to overcome strongholds. Will you receive that today? Will you receive 2 Timothy 1.7 that says you have not been given a spirit of timidity or fear, but a spirit of what? Power and love and of a sound mind. Man, it's hard to read Revelation chapter 9 because we see the enemy uh, seeming to, to be right there and, and it, it, it scares us when, he read it, when we read it because it's this terrifying imagery. But we've got to remember that it's God that gave him the key. That it's God that turns the enemy on itself. He is all powerful. And the same God that raised Jesus from the dead lives in you and gives you the power over every circumstance. Woo! What if you begin to live in that power? What are the possibilities? Whew. Unlimited possibilities to what you can do in the kingdom of God when you begin to live in the truth of who God is. 